The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Hi, and welcome to It's Relatable on Mind, Body, Spirit FM, where we talk about all things relationship. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and I'm so happy you're here. Get comfortable, and let's dig in. All right, everybody, for the first guest on the show, I'm bringing Jen Pasteloff to you, and I'm so excited to have this conversation with her. Some of you may know her as the best-selling author of a book called On Being Human, which came out in June of 2019, and some of you may not have ever heard of her, but she is amazing and wonderful, and I am blessed to count her among my friends that I know actually in real life. So um, we're going to have a great conversation, but just so you have a little framework for who she is, she travels all over the world with a workshop that she has that she calls On Being Human. And it is a hybrid of yoga-related movement and writing and sharing and dance parties. It's pretty magical. I can tell you I've done it myself. She has she does workshops in Italy and London and France, and she's got a couple coming up um, before the end of the year. So check it out. I will put all of the information about where you can find her in the show notes so you can go seek her out. But she has an amazing website at jenniferpasteloff.com. And then she's also on Instagram. Jen also founded an online magazine called The Manifest Station, which is just a beautiful platform for people to write about real life. She leads writing in the body workshops with author Lydia Yuknovich, and um, she's incredibly generous. She offers scholarships to all of her workshops, and she's always open to having folks show up for her online coaching and online workshops and on a sliding scale. So definitely check her out and find her book on being human. It's just really, really beautiful and pretty transformational. So without further ado, let's go have this conversation with Jen Pastela. Thanks for listening. All right. Yay, Jen Pastela is in the house. I'm so excited. So excited. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, welcome to my new podcast. It's relatable. And we're just going to talk about all things relationship. And I am so in love with the way that you talk about relationship to body mm. and what that trajectory has looked like in your over this, you know, the span of your lifetime. And I just think that there's some serious truth bombs you can drop for people around all of that. So I, um, yeah, I would just love for us to go ahead and dive right in and start talking about what 
what it even means to think about being in relationship with our body. You know, I think so much of our approach to like therapy and life in general is this sort of top down model, you know, where we like our bodies are sort of subpar or something to be tamed or, you know, they're going to betray us eventually. And we have to just be in our heads all the time. Um, But I think we do ourselves a disservice when we think about it that way, you know, when we're not actually in communication with our bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, my first question for you is how, I I would love to know how your relationship with, to your body has changed throughout your lifetime. Mm Like, well, I'd say one of the descriptors a couple years ago, I don't know what is time. I was going to say it was a year ago. Now it's almost two years ago. (laughs) I was doing a photo shoot for a friend and by no means a model, but I was modeling her clothes. And I'd say it was like, it was like fall 2020. Cause we were in, you know, we had masks on and we're outside. And I remember I came up, but we were doing it in a park. And she said to me, you're so embodied. And I was kind of taken aback and I thought, Oh my God, that's the greatest compliment. And then After that, what I began to notice is other people said that to me randomly. It was like this thing people began to say to me and no one would have ever said that to me before. And I would have never even thought about that as a compliment, but I took it as a great compliment because for most of my life, at least since my dad died when I was eight, I've not been embodied. Mm -hmm. I've been um, completely disconnected or severed from my body. And that was in an effort in the beginning, you know, when I was eight, it was in an effort to not feel because if I felt the pain and the grief, I thought it would kill me mm. like literally. And also I thought it meant that I was weak and I made up a story for whatever reason. And I stuck by that story that had to be strong. And the way I did that was disconnecting. And I taught myself how to do it. And I was really good at it. And then when I was 17, I became anorexic. And that was like the trump card or, or whatever, the, the pinnacle of it. Because I was like, oh, this works. This works. And, um, and it did. You know, I didn't get my period for four years. And then I, I healed, in air quotes. And, um, and what that looked like was because I gained weight back. But in my brain, I was just a sick. So I never, I still never had dealt with this stuff. So all through my 20s and and even my early 30s, I was still completely disconnected to my body, still in a war with my body until I went on antidepressants when I was about mm, 33 Um, And that is when I think I began to heal, when I began to, um, mm, I would notice that I would have a few moments where I wasn't obsessing Mm. and then a day maybe. And that was the first time since I was 17 years old where I was, I felt present. Um, But it wasn't until my forties or even perhaps when I was pregnant, which I was pregnant late, you know, I was 41. It wasn't late for me, but, you know, biologically speaking, you're geriatric. God, that's the worst. Right? That's what they call it. So, yeah, yeah, that is the worst. And you know, a man made up that term. <laughs> and you know what? A man oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. made up that term. <laughs> so I, um, it wasn't until I was pregnant. And in a lot of ways, 
a lot of it was, um, you know, my hormones evened out and I had always, I'm someone who's always struggled with hormonal stuff. Like I feel like a different person every month, literally. And, and on top of the physical pain, but the, you know, emotional stuff, my hormones even now, and I was not also altering myself in any way. You know, I'm someone who has drank a lot in her life and I wasn't drinking and I wasn't overdoing it with coffee. And I was, my hormones were evened out and I was like, really, um, Oh, had I known I'd feel this good, I would have, I would have gotten pregnant sooner and probably had more kids. But that was probably the first time in my life where I really felt like I was in my body. Mm. And then, you know, just after that, um, the work I do in the world, you know, these, these, this wacky thing that I do that, um, really is just me kind of being myself and living out loud. <laughs> but the more I just began to live in alignment with what I was talking about and teaching um, and getting older and having gone through pregnancy, all these things, I don't know. I, something really began to shift and I began to live more and more in my body and doing more work related to that, teaching more classes about, um, like with Lydia Yuknovich, you know, writing in the body. Yeah. We, we, we literally have a workshop called that. Um, it's just shifted a lot in the sense that I hated my body. I was disconnected from it. I didn't, you know, relate to it to where I am now, where I really like I'm fully present in my body. Um, most of the time I'm not at war with my body. I still have days, <laughs> you know, um, and I won't lie about that, but it's been a journey and there's a lot of sorrow too, because I look back and I think of all the wasted time and all the ways I tortured myself. Mm -hmm. It's hard to be with that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I want to go back to what you said about when you started sort of disconnecting from your body was when your dad died. Right. And that sort of overwhelming grief. I think there's this, I think that's such a universal thing, right? Because we do sometimes have this, these overwhelming sensations and we don't know what to do with them. And so we figure well, out. Especially as a child. So as an adult, we may have that feeling, but then we move past it or we go, oh, I have tools I can remember, or we can call our friend or a therapist. But as an eight year old or a six year old, like my sister was five, I mean, yeah you're kind of fucked if you don't <laughs> and and god bless my mom was 34 right so i did go to therapy and i was like very self-aware and i'm like i'm good and, and i'm good now and the therapists were like okay and yeah. um and that was that you know and and um and also like it's hard to make anyone do anything people tried to make me talk about it and i just um i i, I literally Literally, this is not metaphorically. I literally locked my jaw. I clenched my jaw as a way to like, and I said, be strong, be strong. It was my chant. And now the work of my life, last week I lost a few days ago, four or five days to a debilitating headache that comes from the fact that I clench and grind in my sleep. I'm 47. Mm -hmm. I started doing this at eight and it is a physiological thing. I don't realize I'm doing it in my sleep. Um, it is the way that I taught myself at age eight, I was like, how else can I 
shut it down? Can I lock it? Can I be strong? Um, And it was such a physical thing. And now it's like my teeth, I have missing teeth. I mean, it causes me so much grief. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things, right? We all learn different ways to to hold our grief and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wall it off. Like for me, it was, it was stomach stuff, right? It was all in my, in my stomach. Like that's where I was going to show my stoicism. Right. And then, you know, I grew up and had all these stomach issues for years and years until I figured oh, me, it out. But me, me too. Right. And so much of that, especially as women, we hold a lot in our stomachs, but and my thing too, when I developed anorexia, so you said like, we, we learn how to, we learn ways. And some of them as, as torturous and debilitating and awful as they are, such as anorexia, such as cutting, such as clenching but they work right that like so i found something that works until it doesn't was it killing me absolutely was it also making it so that i didn't feel the grief of my father yes so you know if i if i had like food in me if i didn't feel empty i was like i i can't deal I, i had to feel empty and you know but all the digestive stuff and all the stomach stuff to this day do I think it's all related? Absolutely. Yeah. How can it not be? How can it not be? Right. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. And I think there is that, um, there is, there is that sort of yin yang, right? Like we've figured out how to control our bodies. And so we feel really good about it, but what we're doing to our bodies is destroying them as right. And our bodies are like, and it's also secretive. And it's like, we could talk about this now in hindsight, like the way we're talking about it, but as it's happening, it's not like cognitively, I'm like, well, I'm right. doing this thing. It's all like, so, um, uh, unconscious. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading this thing the other day, um, that just absolutely blew me away that, um, of the, of all of the information that's sent from our brains and our, between our brains and our bodies in any given day, only 20% of it originates in our head and goes to our body. And the other, wow. I'd love to read this. Where were you reading this? I'm trying to remember. I, um, I'll find it. I think I actually, say it again. I think I actually heard it on, um, this podcast called life examined, but so 80% of the information that we're processing in any given day is actually flowing from our bodies to our brains, but we've learned to shut that off. Right. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's, my, I mean, wow. And it's so depressing. So yeah. I'd say, I'd say the work of my life now is reclaiming some of that percentage. Right. And is like really learning how to listen to my body. The other day I had a woman over and you know, her, I'm not going to, I'll tell you after. And, um, I, I, you know, and I even saw you, did I, I saw you Saturday. I, I don't know how I taught yoga. I had the worst headache and, and I know what it's from. And it's so frustrating because I'm causing it. I'm causing it. it. It's like, and my husband will be like, just don't clench. Just don't. It's like, I mean, it's, he's the same with the, just don't be depressed. Oh. I'm making him sound like a Neanderthal and he's not. It's just very hard for people who have not experienced depression or who, you know, don't clench their teeth all night long to understand that it's not, it's not, I've tried that. I tried, you know, telling myself before bed, but I had this debilitating headache and and she was over and um, I was like, are you hungry? And she said something that I think all the time. She's like, 
I don't know. I don't know when I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. Um, she said like, you know, something about either she still had an eating disorder or, or, or she for years. And I think about that all the time, how for so long I couldn't, I didn't even know when I was hungry and when I wasn't or how disconnected from our bodies after years of ignoring those signals or that information or not ignoring it, but even like, um, um, hearing it and going, but denying it, depriving that we have lost when we, that signal, we've lost like what it means. Yeah. Or we're like deaf to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We, it's that mentalizing thing we do. You know, when I, when I work with people that are in recovery, it's, you know, we talk about how, you know, you have that, you have that substance and then you get that dopamine hit that makes you feel good. And then you get the craving, right? And eventually it's harder and harder to get the dopamine hit, but it doesn't matter because our brains have just made the shortcut between the craving and the substance. And we can sort of cut out the, the dopamine thing. Mm, Whereas yeah. if we could figure out how to get the dopamine hit from something else, right? But that's, again, that's cutting off ourselves from our bodies. That's because what we, the story we've created in our head is if I eat this thing or drink this thing or smoke this thing, I'm going to feel better because that's the way it's worked before. So I'm just going to keep doing these two things. And, and it's like with you and the anorexia, it actually, we're more miserable the more we do it, but we're not paying attention to the signals in our bodies that are saying, please stop doing this. I, I, the level of misery. I mean, I remember a bunch of years ago, it had to be a decade now, this UK magazine did a piece on me. I don't remember how it happened. And they called me a happiness coach. And I like peed my pants because growing up my whole life, you know, I've always been depressive, but my whole life, um, people were like, you should smile more. And you're so serious. Then, you know, when I was anorexic, it wasn't that people said that as much. I will just tell you flat out. I was fucking miserable all the time. And the idea that someone could even call me a happiness coach delighted me to no end because I was like, me? <laughs> I mean, I, the misery that I was in all those years, I I cannot. And that's what I mean when I said the sorrow and I think back on that, like all the waste of time, how miserable I was. Yeah. And I did it all on myself. Well, we do. That's We do that to ourselves, right? I mean, that we all do that in different ways. You know, we, I mean, we, like when I was so depressed and suicidal, I somehow knew that what I needed was to be around people, but I just kept isolating myself more and more. Yeah. I was making myself more miserable because I was isolating myself, even though I should have been doing the exact opposite thing. Well, yeah, but a lot of that is like, I mean, I, I always know that's the thing. That's the problem with being self-aware. I mean, that's why my book ends with the words, now what? The knowing, of course you knew. It's like, but that's only part of it. Right. The other part is the act, right? So it's like, yeah, it's the same with me with drinking. Like right now I'm like I'm maybe two weeks now off alcohol and day by day, I'm not saying it's forever, but I had to get myself in check because I have tendencies, right? And um. And I know, I know, like, I'm good. I don't feel good the next morning. I know all these things and I'm, and I'm doing it anyway. So it's not the knowing and it's not even about denial. It's that chasm between 
knowing and then taking action. That's why now what are like my favorite words, some of them. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, I know I need to be around people. I'll feel better. And somehow I can't manage to do it or I don't care enough or I'm too depressed to, or it's whatever the reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. There's yeah, I say that with parents a lot of when I'm working with parents of teens is like, there's a difference between knowing and actually doing it. Like we all know that if we just exercise for 45 minutes every single day and didn't eat junk food and got 10 hours of sleep. And, you know, we, we know all the things that would make us feel better as adults and we still don't do them. So (laughs) absolutely. And I think I've always been smart in the sense of like, um, wisdom, I suppose. And like people like what I do now, I've kind of been born this way and I've never, I've always struggled with the bullshit story. I'm not smart enough because like with, you know, with, with growing up, it was like, Oh, well, she's smart, but not books, not about me, but like people, you know, be like, they're smart, but not book smart, you know, that stupid expression. But I always felt like that was me. I've always been aware of like how bright, but like, I always felt not book smart and inadequate. But as a child, for example, like after my dad died and all this stuff, I was so self-aware and able to, you know, say things. And so therapists were like, wow. So like when I was anorexic, of course I knew. And I'd be able to talk, you know, the thing was, this is is where, I mean, it took me a long time in my workshops nowadays to realize the missing link was the now what, Mm -hmm. but I should have realized all back then because I could say all the things. Yeah. I'm aware, but there was no now wedding because I did not want to let go of that as my identity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I could talk, you know, the knowing is, and again, it's not, not nothing because there are people that let's say are anorexic and they're completely in denial. So it's big, but it's not enough. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, um, I'm struck by what you said about that. You, you weren't ready to let go of that as your identity. So I'm wondering what it is that you got out of that. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's why, it's why, um, my work has morphed over the last, like I've been doing this stuff now for like 12 years, you know, but I used to say, and I still do like, who would you be if nobody told you who you were? I got that from Wayne Dyer and I loved it. And, and then that's when I started saying, may I have the courage to be who I say I am. And it, and it always made me think about those years about being anorexic because I didn't want to let go of my identity. Like then, because then who would I be? So for example, people would always worry about me. Like I could feel the alarm and that looking back, I realized like I got off on that and I couldn't figure out why. And of course now I go, Oh, because it made me feel special. It made me what, you know, at the time I couldn't, I knew I needed it. Like if, if, or if people didn't comment on my weight or if I wasn't the skinniest person in the room, I don't even look at bodies now. Like notoriously, all my friends know I don't come. I don't look, I really, I don't notice. I've trained myself that way. And I'm proud of that. But, but like back in the day, I would literally have a, panic attack, panic. If I wasn't the skinniest person in the room and it, uh, you know, so I guess the identity was, um, it's so cliche that it's embarrassing. I felt special. Um, I felt like, you know, it made me worthy somehow. Like people were worried about me and, um, 
you know, um, I stood out. I don't, I, I just, it, it somehow separated me yeah. from people and made me feel special. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if this is true for you, but, um, so I have two daughters and I was always really worried about body image stuff and, and all of that, because one of the things that I know is that, especially as young women, we learn really, really early on the power that our bodies have over other people right? Because people are going to catcall us or they're going to comment on what we're wearing or do we lose weight or isn't that a great outfit or, oh my gosh, you got your hair cut or you look so adorable, right? right. And so um, there's there's an insidiousness to that, but there's a power to it too, right? If you're in a culture like ours where women don't have equal power, there's this seductive quality to like, oh, I can dress a certain way. And have power over the people. I can elicit certain responses, right? Um, I mean, I think now, like, as you're saying that, and as I'm thinking, because I've thought about this all the time, I, I mean, I think it's as basic as, is. I, it was attention. Mm-hmm. It was attention. And um, I don't know, I get, I think I thought, gosh, this is making me so sad. But I think I was like, well, if I don't have this, then what else do I have? Mm-hmm. And I remember my old roommate, she was a model. We don't speak anymore. It's beside the point, but, (laughs) um, I remember like when I first moved in with her, I was just turning 22 and I felt she was very beautiful and tall, a different body type. And it's so funny because she never had eating disorder stuff. And it was very hard for her to understand it. And like, she said a couple things and that still stick with me. Mm -hmm. I call them the things that get stuck, you know, those things. Yeah. The day when I was working at the restaurant, the newsroom, this guy came in and I was by the magazine rack. We had a magazine rack. That was the whole gimmick. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all the news that's fit to print, all the food that's fit to eat. I was by the magazine rack and he comes in and puts his hand on my stomach and he goes, damn, they've been feeding you. Oh, yeah. Like, I literally cannot forget that. It's like stuck in me. So anyway, this roommate of mine made a comment once and, and she was like, you're so cute. It's like, you're, you're what did she say? You're like. Um, and mind you, like I nearly had died from anorexia. So now I remember I said I gained weight back. So I looked amazing, but I wasn't, I didn't look like I was dying anymore. Right. What did she say to me? She goes, um, well, like you've that like pudgy little body. Oh yeah. But like in her mind, it was like, cute, you're so cute. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to die now. Um, and I remember she would just dress like she never tried to accentuate her body. And I have, I have boobs, I have big boobs and I've always in like a bubble butt and I've always like, you know, and I never could dress like when I was going out or anything without showing my cleavage and this, and, and she would comment on that. And, um, and even, and now I look back and it's like, yeah, I, I didn't think like I was worthy to pay like pretty enough or worthy to pay attention to, or I had to. Like that was my selling point. So it's like with the anorexia, it's like, who would I be without that? Right. And then with my body stuff, like, well, who would I be? Like, how would I be attractive or worthy if I wasn't showing how cute my body is or showing my cleavage or wearing, you know, a really tight pants. You could see my butt or, you know, all this makeup. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. It's the, it's so powerful. I think when we start to identify so closely with the way that our, like the shape of our bodies, the way that they look, you know, 
um, it can be really scary, I think. I know. I know. And I just, um, it's, it's hindsight is so (laughs) interesting and frustrating, you know, and, um, so I'm curious about yoga. How, what did, did yoga play any role in you? Yeah. I mean, I did a podcast the other day about yoga. It was really interesting. I've never like just talked about yoga and since like, yoga teacher training and but it made me think about a lot like it definitely was one of the healing tools for me I mean before when I was just you know waitressing and I was so depressed I wanted to die I wasn't on antidepressants and I started doing yoga all the time I had been you know an exercise bulimic I was never bulimic thank mm-hmm. god but exercise bulimia I mean I worked out like four hours a day I mean the the things I've done to my body. I don't know how I don't have more injuries than I do, but like pounding my body. If if you said to me, Jen, did you exercise today? And I didn't do like, I only did an hour. I would tell you no. And I would not think I was lying because it didn't count. Literally like I, ugh. anyway. Um, so I discovered yoga and, and I, cause I had all these injuries from, you know, four hours a day of like pounding yeah. and, it was like these moments, this hour or whatever it was where I was not obsessing on my body or I was not, or I was obsessing less mm-hmm. or I wasn't doing something that would immediately make me feel like, well, I burned calories or, or, um, or I was good. So it, it really began to create a shift in me and, and I would find pockets of quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't do yoga anymore if I tell the truth and I want to get back to it. I don't ever want to get back to doing it all the time because that also created a lot of injuries and stuff in my body. And like it's moderation. Right. And it's not so much even about the asana. It's that quiet, the way that you get, you know, it's a moving meditation. It's the way I meditate and it's hard to slow down and get quiet, which is why I prefer doing the elliptical and watching a show on Netflix. Right. But yoga really helped with, um, getting out of my head. It helped with the learning to become embodied. Yeah. A lot. And then when I began to teach and then when I, now when I do my workshops, the way that helps is I'm really good at walking the talk. I'm never going to be the person as best as I can, who says one thing and lives another way. So the more I teach and the more I lead retreats and the more I work with women, just the better I am because I want to be who I say I am. Yeah. It's not like I'm walking around preaching, but I'm hoping that we all are a little kinder to ourselves, you know? And so I do my best to be and be embodied. Yeah, I think, well, it, I don't know about you, but so when I started doing yoga, it was for very similar reasons. Like I needed to get out of my head and I was so depressed, but it was really hard for me to not treat it like a competition. Like I would look around the room and see what everybody else was doing. And I would think I'm never going to be able to do crow pose or I have to be able to, you know, hold this one pose longer or what. So I was still in my head when I was right. doing yoga and it was such a struggle for me. Yeah. I mean, I definitely look around for me. I don't know what I never, I'm not really competitive 
I don't think, I mean, I definitely get MBS sometimes, you know, I had a like one o'clock in the morning moment the other day and I went down a rabbit hole looking at someone who's like, you know, look, really looked up to me and I was like their idol and they've like sold a million more books to me and making a million more dollars. And I'm like, went down the rabbit hole of envy and all, but when it comes, it's funny with like anything physical, I've never quite been competitive because I'm so bad at like sports and like I'm not particularly good at any of the posing stuff so thank god I'm like so I think that's one of the reasons I'm so jokey in yoga too like if you fall you must laugh is because I'm not coordinated (laughs) I'm just like clutchy but the, the competition stuff with like bodies and um you know that kind of stuff is very easy not so much like with what it can do, but what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the only way I was able to get out of it was to really like, I started to notice over time how I felt when I did yoga, you know, like the next day I'd be like walking up the stairs and I would think, Oh yeah. Okay. My butt muscles are feeling good. Like I did, you know, and I, and I started to sort of appreciate what yoga was doing for my body. And then I was able to, start to spend more time thinking about like all of the miraculous things that my body accomplishes in any given moment. Like you and I are sitting here having this conversation, right. And like blood cells are moving around and my heart is pumping and, you know, oxygen's being exchanged in my lungs and my fingernails are growing. And, you know, like there's all this stuff happening and it's pretty you know, if we could just, I, I mean, I'm, that's really the key. And remember at the retreat when Krista Vernoff, um, shout out to Krista, mm-hmm. who would be a great person to talk to about bodies as well. Like had us do that journaling exercise, you know, I'm grateful because, or I'm grateful for, and just like write for a long time. And if we could constantly shift to a place of awe, um, in my retreat in Italy, and maybe I'll do it again when you come, when, when we'd go on, like on a day trip to Siena, I'd tell people to bring a little journal called the Awe and Wonder Journal and just like write in it and, and, or take photos. I, I think I'll do it with your iPhone or whatever, like Awe and Wonder. But if we can keep dropping into that place of Awe and Wonder, it, it's, it's almost impossible to not be embodied. If you're like, oh my God. And especially, I remember when my foot broke, especially if you've had anything go awry or break or you've gotten sick and then you've, you've, you really go, holy wow. Yeah. If you, if you get better or you heal, hopefully that's the case, but it's like such an opportunity to be like, oh my God, look what the body does. Look what it can do. Yeah. Yeah, that and I felt that when I was pregnant too. I know some people don't feel great when they're pregnant, but I felt freaking amazing when I was pregnant. I loved being pregnant. And there so it was easy for me to sort of fall into that. But there was also the, you know, every time you go to the OB, they go, let's see how much weight you've gained. And there was all of that, you know, like nonsense about it was part of the reason that I love breastfeeding now because I was burning so many calories by nursing my, my kids that I, 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 I love like, nice every I, night. <laughs> this day that is my favorite thing and I like I remember my mom telling me all my life she's like breastfeeding is like taking a Valium it's and I was like I don't even understand that and in the very beginning of course I couldn't get it and I felt like a failure and I remember like I could never understand when I heard about women that were like struggling with it and why they like 
felt bad or felt like a failure until it happened to me. And I had to get, you know, a lady to teach me can't come over. And I remember she came over and her son was in kindergarten and, you know, Charlie was like a month, whatever. And her like five-year-old was like, Tata, whatever he asked. And he, and he was like breastfeeding. And I was like, oh my God, okay. And I went into like judgy mode. But meanwhile, I'm like, I couldn't figure it out. And then it finally clicked. And it was my favorite thing. And it was just like my mom said for me. I was like, it's so amazing. And I went through, I mean, I still miss it. And I went through, I didn't have postpartum except when I stopped breastfeeding, which was like way after he was born, you know, yeah. postpartum breastfeeding was like, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So I did body. That was another way that like, you know, being connected to your body and someone else. I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. I think that, yeah, I loved nursing my kids too, because there was that, miraculous sense of like my body just knows exactly what to do except for the fact that my body made like enough milk for a small african country so oh same i mean i i think that's why i was born with big boot i was like i i mean i i'm not even kidding charlie just turned six i swear six months ago i still had i would like squeeze and i'm like are you kidding me now it's not anymore but i was like how can i still like i my body is like, make more babies. <laughs> <laughs> you were a wet nurse in a previous life. That's what it was. That's what people used to say to me. Like you would have been like the best wet nurse in Victorian times. You just breastfeed everybody's babies. because <laughs> I had so much milk, but yeah, I remember feeling that sense of awe at my body and like what, what it just did and what it was capable of doing. And I think you're right. I think there is something to be said about, you know, giving our body its due. And that's why I love that little fact about the fact that 80% of the information is actually flowing from our bodies to our brains in any given day. And we're just not aware of it. Right. So again, it's like what you said about sort of finding that stillness, mm-hmm. you know, I just, mm-hmm. why I love at low tide going to the beach and just being out there and experiencing all of that stuff, right? I'm smelling the salt in the air. I'm hearing the waves. I'm mm-hmm. feeling the sand on my toes. It's that, like, I can get out of my head and start to just experience sure. it. And really, like, paying attention to the sensations and allowing yourself to be still, and and not like always going, moving, being, doing, right? Yeah. So that yeah, we don't I, stop and feel. Yes. And I think that's what our bodies want, right? Our bodies are craving that stillness, those moments of quiet, those moments of reflection, of just daydreaming and spacing out. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's important for us to give ourselves those every day if we can. Um, and to do other like really joyful things, which is why I love one of the things that, um, you do in your yoga classes is like spontaneous dance party. <laughs> we'll just be Cause I'm a happiness coach, Carrie. I'm a happiness coach. <laughs> but it's <laughs> coaching like, it's nothing like dancing for getting into your body, right? Like just, I just, you know, I call it dorking out and it's just like about, there's so many, you know, Katie Hendricks, what does she say? It takes two minutes to change your state. 
mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly the, the fact of it, but you know, first of all, there's so many benefits to it. And, and the big one, the reason I started doing that besides the fact that it's just fun and like, we need more fun is, um, it really gets you out of your head in terms of worrying what they will think the good opinion of other people. So like you start talking it out and, you know, first it's like, that's why I always say like, if you sing badly, sing louder, if you don't know the words, make them up. If you're a terrible dancer like me, you know, get in the center because it, you know, at first people might be in their heads like, Oh my God, people are staring at me. And then slowly, but surely or not slowly, that slips away. And the freedom that comes with that is priceless. Like I always think, imagine if we lived our life more from that place. Right. And so I hope, I mean, it doesn't every once in a while, it doesn't happen for someone. They cannot let go, but most people are able when they look around and everyone's darking it out are able to also embody that freedom and be silly and joyful. And, um, I don't know, it creates such an opening for, uh, us to be embodied and to be fully who we are and to like stop worrying so much about what other people think and what is possible when we stop worrying so much about what other people think everything. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And to be able to tap into this whole extra set of information about the world, right? I'm paying attention to my body. There's this, all of this other stuff that's happening that I think is so, you know, we shut ourselves off from that for most of our day. Um, so I'm curious, what is, what are the things that you love the most about your body right now in your body? Like, well, in this moment in time, one of the things I love the most is I feel really present because I'm not drinking. And I, you know, I've, as my friend Kristen said, <laughs> who's long sober, she was, she's helping with my book proposal. And, and the other day she was like out of the blue. I mean, she's gosh, she's around me all the time. So she knows I drink. Um, but out of the blue and she doesn't judge. She well, not out of the blue, but she was working on my book proposal. And she said, so if you ever want to go to a meeting with me and I was like, okay. And then she goes, I'm just, you know, there's a lot of drinking in your book proposal. And I was like, is there, I mean, I remember like one poem mm-hmm. where I said something like about letting yourself off the hook if you drank and you said you wouldn't, she goes, no, there's a lot. And she said, um, I'm, I'm talking to you as your friend, not your editor. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm listening. And I'm not like, I'm, I'm not feeling defend, you know, I love her and I'm not, and I'm also like, uh, tell me something I don't know. Right. <laughs> so yeah. like, so, so she said, well, if I was just like a, like a random person reading it, I would be like, wow, this person has an unresolved drinking problem. And, and that's when I go, tell me something I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, she said, um, well, I've always known you were someone who danced with it, but you know, I just like, I don't want you to die young or, and she started saying these things and and I like really hurt her. And what's funny is I was randomly three days into not drinking. Cause I was like, so over myself, over the <sighs> habitual, um, things that I do. I mean, it's all the same. It's all the same as the anorexia. It's the same yeah. bullshit. And, um, and I, was really proud of myself, you know? And I was like three days. And so when she said that, I was like, okay. And I kept thinking about like, um, yeah, the dance I do with it. So I'm two weeks now, like last night I went out for dinner and it was so much fun. 
no drinking. And so I feel really present. I mean, markedly, noticeably, which then reminds me, it's like, gosh, I, it's another way that I've cut off to being in my body. Now, am I saying, I'm not saying here um, for perpetuity that I'm going into AA or I'm not going to drink ever. So when I go to Paris in a few weeks, if I decide to have some rosé, which I'm really looking forward to, and is like one of the reasons why I'm like, well, I, this can't be forever because I'm going to Paris and yeah. and. And then I have my friends who are sober who are like, look at you negotiating and like struggling. And, but I'm not saying it's forever, people. So back off. But I am saying that one of the things I love about my body right now is how present I am and the lack of anxiety, which is it's got to be a correlation to not drinking. Now, I know when PMS comes around in like a week or whatever, like I said before, my PM, my hormones are motherfuckers and it'll probably be back but i'm like oh that's interesting anxiety isn't here huh so that um and then um i love that i'm not at war with it (laughs) yay hallelujah hallelujah yeah And, and i think that is the key, right? Like we cause ourselves so much suffering by being at war with our bodies. Yeah. And um, I have a really good friend. She was married to my dad for um, a while when I was growing up. Um, so she, your stepmom. She well, she was his second wife, and then he got remarried. So whatever. Um, but she's probably my closest friend on the planet. So she's in her seventies, and she's annoyed because her body's starting to fall apart, you know, her hips are messed up and she's had two knee replacements and all of that. And some days I'll call her and she's just despondent and unhappy and enraged and annoyed and, you know, all the things that she can't do. Um, and some days I'll call her and we have this great conversation and she's in a better space. And it, and the difference is, whether or not she's railing against her body. It's not that she's physically feeling better one day or the other. The fact is she's in her mid to late 70s. She's it's going to continue on this trajectory. But the days that that she sort of accepts it and tries to figure out what can I do are the days where she's not at war with her body are the days where she's happier. And I think, you know, touching on the drinking thing too, you know, I stopped drinking a few years ago for the most part. And I say for the most part, because um, when my oldest daughter turned 21, she was like, mom, you have to have a glass of wine. (laughs) But you, you never, you, you, for you, it was just sort of in solidarity, right? It wasn't like you were um, yourself felt like you had a drinking problem or did you? I didn't feel like I had a drinking problem for me. It was, I'm a mindfulness teacher. I, you know, I coach mindfulness and I, that was the, one of the few things in my life that I did without any mindfulness at all. You know, I would go out to dinner with friends and the first thing I would do is pick up the wine list and decide, you know, which wine I'm having. I never asked myself the question, do I actually feel like having wine? You know, it's like you go out to dinner and people go, do you want Italian? Do you want Mexican? Do you want Chinese? You know, do you want Thai food, whatever? And you can stop and sort of check in with yourself to see what you want. There was never that moment of discernment for me. It was always, I'm going to have yeah, wine. And I, I mean, you're, as you're saying that, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's funny. Why wouldn't you? Like, what is yeah. one you when they go out to dinner? if they're not? Right. 
and then every podcast interview. So (laughs) every celebration was, you know, oh, somebody's kid just graduated. Let's go have a drink. Somebody, you just got a new job. Let's go have a drink. Right. Mine, mine, I think is was is more insidious because it's always it's usually just by myself, and it's not that's that's only because I hate going out, you know. But it's like, um, it's like habitually every night, you know, and so it's not just celebration, and I. Yeah. No, I was in that space too. Cause I would have a glass of wine every night while I was cooking dinner. Yeah. And so then it became in solidarity with the young man that came to live with me who was in high school and who was in recovery because I was noticing like, what are the messages I'm sending to him? Mm-hmm. about You know, and all of those like mommy wine culture messages, like mommy needs wine. or It makes me want to seriously just become like all that made me want to get sober just just in spite of that because I, it was so cringy it's yeah. so awful i hate that yeah it's it, it is awful. embarrassed it makes me embarrassed for us just stop yeah it is i i agree i think it's horrible too but i think the the, the good thing is being able to notice like you're doing right so what i noticed when i stopped drinking was my anxiety completely went away and I slept so much better. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I know it's, and it's it was like ridiculous and it's so. like the proof is in the pudding. And so it goes back to that. Like, well, I know. So I guess I'm like, okay. I said to Christian, I, I want to be like able to like, you know, if I go to Europe or when I go to Italy and do the wine tasting and I'm going to see, so I guess that'll be the test, right? Like if I can go and just have, a, you know, some, and then go back to, yeah. notoriously what's happened in the past if i don't drink and then i start again then it becomes an everyday thing again immediately so that'll be my test and and then she's like yeah but it's it, th- again it's that like all or nothing and so i'm just taking it day by day and seeing if i can be the type of person that can just if i feel like having some rosé in paris or go to a dinner and not then have it be every night i'm drinking tequila by myself or you know yeah um, whatever it is. And I think just to bring this all sort of full circle that what that requires of us is to be in relationship with our bodies. Right. Without a doubt. Because, because I never pause to ask that question. What do I want? You know, or, or even if I'm like, what do I really want right now? What am I looking for with that? Like I, it's so hard to be with that, Yeah, but that's really imperative. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, Yeah. The things, so I, have created this little, I don't even know what to call it, but I have this theory about relationship, all of the relationships we have in our lives and the three things that destroy them and the three things that nurture them. And I think it's absolutely true in this case, the three things that destroy our relationships with our bodies are power, competition, and fear. Like all of those things cut us off from our bodies, make us feel like, you know, right. And the things that bring us back in relationship and the things that nurture our relationships with our bodies are trust, collaboration, and reciprocity. I love that. Say it again. So power, fear, and competition. competition. Yeah. Are the things that destroy relationship and all relationship, right? Like marriages and parent-child relationships and student-teacher relationships, like all of those things and our relationship with our bodies, and competition and fear. And the things that nurture relationship reciprocity. reciprocity and collaboration. Uh, love it. And so if we can find our way back into like 
yeah, I may not like all the things that are happening in my 50 year old body right now, but I trust my body. Cause I know it's, and it's I, um, I mean, that's, um, that's how like all my relationships with my, my friends are and my, you know, I mean that trust reciprocity. I mean, that's, yeah. you know that, like I have such confidence saying that it's not, I'm not like, I mean, I think no, like full body knowing. Right. Yep. Yeah. And so how do we get into that space with our bodies, right? How do we trust our bodies to set us the right signal? How do we, you know, reciprocate with our bodies by saying, I heard what you said, and now I'm going to act on this thing that you need me to do, Mm -hmm. right? And then how do we collaborate with our bodies? How do we, instead of being either a floating head or someone who's only embodied, how do we have that? I mean, it's like, I mean, that's really my next book, right? It's about daily practices and it's about being willing to ask that question that you just asked and pause and wait for the answer because most of the time that's what we don't do. Got to keep moving, keep moving, can't stop, can't slow down. So I don't know the answer to that. So it's like, um, allowing, I love that word, allowing ourselves to get quiet, to get still, to take a few moments in the morning before email and scrolling and all that. And really like be intentional with, I call it the body prayer, right? But like, how do I want to feel today? What do I want to remember? You know? Um, and then listening, yeah. That requires, you know, getting quiet and whatever that looks like for you. It doesn't have to be literally getting quiet, but it's different for all of us, right? Right. And I think it's important too to know that it takes practice, right? Like you're not going to just wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to do Jen's body prayer and it's going to be, my body's going to send me this instant. Well, it's, 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 about, it's about an everyday thing. That's why I'm always like, that's why I call it the yoga that you take with me quiet the inner asshole, not kill it. Right. I used to think I'd kill it. And it's like, well, no, because you wake up, it might be in bed with you again. So it's every day we get to begin again. It's only, only, I can only talk about today. And I know that's like an AA thing, but it's true. You know, I can't say like, well, for the rest of my life, every day, I'm going to do the body prayer. No, just, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to commit to doing it tomorrow or yeah. today. Right. But I don't know. Yeah. Otherwise, I New Year's resolutions. Yeah. No, I love that. I, because I think, you know, it, one of the things that I learned when I was going through all my mindfulness training is, you know, our brains only ever have the capacity to be in the future or the past, but our bodies mm-hmm. are only ever in the present. And so if you want to get out of your, you know, spinning of, I'm overanalyzing that thing that happened last night, or I'm really worried about this thing that's going to happen in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. get into your body because your body can't be in the past or the future. It can only ever be right here, right now. And 99.9% of the time you're safe where you are right now in this moment. And that, that's, that's my mantra. You know, I literally chant that to myself and, and I mean, that's like, I don't say anything that I don't like. That's a lie. I mean, I try not to, but I, I chant, I'm safe. I'm safe because that's like, you know, the biggest thing in my life is when my dad died, it's like, I felt unsafe. So my favorite words are, it's going to be okay. And, and that's why I love, I got you, but I am safe. And so that's my biggest thing is not feeling safe. So it's like, okay, I'm safe. I'm safe. safe." And mantras, you know, whatever you want to call them, things you say to yourself, um, they help. And if, we know I'm here. I say, I'm here. I'm in my body. I'm safe because you're right. 
all that stuff is happening back there or forward. But like, if we come back to the, I am here, I'm in my body, we are safe. I mean, hopefully, unless you're like, you've been kidnapped or, you know, yeah, I can't make a blanket statement. I don't know. Right. But yeah, no, it's true. It's, and I think it's really powerful to remind ourselves that, that we like, Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm going to, um, all, the show notes are going to have links to all of your stuff in there. Um, send it all. I'll send it all. Awesome. But if there's anything else you want folks to know before we end, um, you know, just, um, I do a lot of virtual stuff. So sign up for my mailing list, jenniferpastelup.com. And I always make it accessible. If you can't afford it, you just reach out. You can't do that for my in-person stuff, but virtual, I teach writing classes and, classes called shame loss and yoga and and all different things. So come hang out with me. And I have some retreats coming up in person, one in North Carolina and the Smoky Mountains, one in Ojai, which is near, well, I live here, Carrie's in Santa Barbara, but, but just come hang out and be in community. That's it. Awesome. Yes, definitely. I think everybody should do something with you with some of your online stuff, if that's all they can do, because it's fun and it, amazing people show up just all that, that is true always amazing that is true <laughs> awesome thank you so much jen we'll put links to everything all the ways you can find jen and her work in the show notes thank you again bye all right That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of It's Relatable. I'm your host, Carrie O'Driscoll, and you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode in the show notes on the webpage for the podcast at mindbodyspirit.fm. Please reach out to me with questions, comments, and ideas for the show and download episodes and leave reviews on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. If you like, subscribe, and follow, You'll be sure to get updated whenever there's a new show to listen to. The music at the beginning and the end of the show is a clip from a song called Get By. It was written by Lauren O'Driscoll, Alexander Parker Lawrence, and Moses Ray Walker. The song is performed by Lorelai and Sam Rydell, and you can find the whole amazing song wherever you stream music. I highly recommend it if you need a mood lifter. I also want to give a shout out to Moses Walker for helping me produce this podcast. He is always and forever making these technical things seem so much more doable for me. And I am grateful for his expertise and advice. Until next time, take care, mind your relationships, and be well, everyone. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.